More specifically, 2 Samuel, uh, we're going to cover all of chapter 14. Uh, We are making our way, for those of you who may not know, uh, we are making our way through this historic narrative of Old Testament Scripture, 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, It traces the life of God's people, Israel. Uh, This is probably uh, approximately a hundred year period that uh, is from the time of judges, of the likes of Samson, uh, through the life of um, the first king of Israel and then David, uh, the great king of Israel, a hundred years into the uh, the Davidic monarch, we we refer to it as ruling over Israel. We're actually in the second half of 2 Samuel, and, uh, and it's not only sad, but if it were a story that were to be the script for a, let's say, a feature-length uh, film, uh, it would be a movie that is rated... You can finish my sentence. It's rated R. It, it is, this is, uh, this is, there, are some, there are some details here that uh, are, are, are heavy and uh, for mature audiences. So, uh, you know, students, thank you for bearing with us. And if you have questions, ask your mom and dad or, or me. Uh, um, I heard a great quote this week, uh, yet another great quote from uh, Pastor Tim Keller, uh, who lives on in his writing and uh, who died this past summer. Tim Keller has a great quote. He says this, Christianity is not true because it's relevant. It's relevant because it's true. Let me say that again. Christianity is not true because it's relevant. It's relevant because it is true. The scriptures, I I will confess, uh, at times are confusing. Uh, that's coming from me. Yeah, you're right. I, I love the Bible, uh, Old and New Testament, and, and I've spent a lot of time studying it. Uh, and it's still, at turns and times, confusing. But when the Bible, when Scripture describes the human experience, the human condition, uh, human behavior and uh, nature, we see that there is nothing new under the sun. Even the stories that we, re- we read of from thousands of years removed, we can see there's nothing new under the sun. Now, say what you may think, uh, believe what you may think with, refer- with reference to macroevolution. Uh, one thing we can say pretty confidently is that humans uh, have not uh, morally evolved. <laughs> uh, we-, we have not become better. There are things uh, that corrupt and stain the best of countries the best of communities, the best of families, right down to the best of our individual intentions even. Sin can corrupt those things. When the Bible speaks with moral clarity and brutal honesty, let me say that again. When the Bible speaks with moral clarity and brutal honesty about things like sex and deceit, we shake our heads. We go, yep. That is true. That's true to reality. That is true to what we have observed. Uh, Even though it's thousands of years removed, this is a description when we read it that describes reality. Let me give you an example. Well, I'm going to get to an example in a second. But but trying to help reestablish and reset some of our context one more time, let me just go back. David, as you know, is the king. uh, And he has used his power. And he has used his persuasion at a time when he was relaxing from battle, when all of his men were off of battle, and he has decided to act on his own selfish desires. And he he commits a grievous sin and crime against God and others. 
uh, to feed and to try to satisfy some of his desires by taking another man's wife and taking, sadly enough, another man's very life. It, it, it makes it even more confusing to process that when you think this is a man who we know loves God and God loves him. But we, we need to come away again sober in a reminder that this could happen to any one of us. How could we think of David being so deceived? We ourselves could be deceived. But when the weight of conviction and the consequences of some of his choices come crashing down, we know that at times that can lead in two different directions. It could be worldly sorrow, sorrow mean, meaning I'm sorry I got caught, I'm sorry that it affects me, I'm sorry that it embarrasses me, versus godly sorrow, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 leads unto repentance. David has that. We're grateful that David comes to uh, repentance and, and contrition and, and that's the sorrow that we uh, recognize. And he is restored. Why? Because God pursued him through the prophet Nathan. Remember, two chapters ago, Nathan comes to him, tells him a parable and says, you, you are the man. He, he, he tries to appeal to his, his uh, justice and his conscience. And he says, oh, and by the way, you're the man. And David does repent. And for the rest of his life, uh, it is revealed that he will have to live with, with a limp. With, with a curse, with the division that haunts his family for years to come. There's a great sorrow. And because of David's sin of, of polygamy, he's got way more children than he can handle, and they have to face the impact. And we read of three of them in particular in this chapter. Okay, So pay attention, if you would, because this is going to help you, you know, uh, orient yourself. The three sons and daughters are Amnon, okay, Tamar, and Absalom. Now, now, you know, there's different wives here. So Amnon has one, one mother, uh, uh, and that's David's son. And then Tamar and Absalom together are, are full. So they're half, half brother and sister, except for Tamar and Absalom. And they are full brother and sister siblings. Amnon developed an incestuous uh, pull and desire for his half sister, Tamar. Why? Because she was beautiful but also because he was perverted and his, his heart was not in the right place. She was attracted to her. He has a crafty plan to draw her in, to pull her close. And what happens? He, he, he is violent. He puts his hands on her. He, he, he is aggressive and he violates her. We talked about that last week. And here's where the relevance comes into focus that I mentioned that the Bible brings. I said it last week. There is a relationship between selfish lust and contempt. You see, 2 Samuel 13, verse 15, Tamar, if you were to go back and read our previous chapter, in that verse, Tamar pleads with her half-brother, don't do this. It's not good for you. It's horrible for me. This is not what people of God in Israel do. But he does not heed. He does not listen. And what does it say? After he sleeps with her and, and violates her, it says this, then Amnon hated her. He hated her with the very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And he just sends her away. Just get out of here. Lock the door behind her. And it's so sad. 
And this sits heavy on us because, and I, and I know it's hard to hear it and, and to process. And I, and I mentioned that last week. I, I'd love to know of ways that I can pray for you or help you even process that. If you have already listened to, or if you go back and listen to last week's sermon about some of those heavy, heavy matters. But here's what comes into focus. There is, a dis, there is this lust, and then there is this disgust. There's not a satisfaction. There's not a unity that he, of course, experiences with his half-sister. It's not God's design. God's design is that you would have uh, the intimacy between a covenanted husband and a wife. And then it's beautiful. But here it is ugly. Sadly enough, Absalom, Tamar's uh, full brother, he's livid, understandably. Okay, like he, he finds out what has happened. He doesn't handle it very well. He handles it, though, very strategically. He is very calculated. He is very slow and patient in his strategic revenge. He plays it cool. But after about a two-year period, he gathers all the brothers together and he takes out Amnon's life. And everybody knows why. Everyone knows the, the, the very motivation that he has. But it's not right. He probably tried to justify it in his own mind. He probably tried to justify it, his actions, saying, Look, my father, the king, isn't taking this matter up. So I'm going to take and, and pull matters into my own hands. It's wrong. Absalom knows it, and he, he, he knows he's going to be in trouble. And so he goes into a, a neighboring country to seek exile. He's trying to escape. He knows that he's in danger. And similar to his own father, when David was running away from King Saul, he takes uh, refuge in, a, in another country. We see David's struggle, though. King David's struggle here for leadership. He, he's confused. He doesn't know what is best. And what I'm about to read in our text, and I'm going to read all of chapter 14, and and, uh, it's hard. Uh, It's it's a long passage, so listen carefully and be patient as I try to take what really is, I don't know another way to describe it, uh, a bit of a a knot and try to uh, unpack and unravel it some for us. So let me invite you to stand, uh, if you would, and uh, open up your, your copy of uh, chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. We're going to read out of deference to God and to help you stay awake, because this is a really long chapter, okay? Hear this. Now Joab, that's the commander under David's army, Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab went to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many, many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth and she's ready to act. Verse four, when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead and your servant had two sons and they quarreled. They quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. She's referring to herself. They're all against me. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother who was killed. And they and so they would destroy uh, the heir also. Thus, they would quench my coal that is left and leave to me my husband, neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, you go, go to your house and I will give consent concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king on behalf of. 
on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And then he said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not, only a hair, not a hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Verse 12, then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, well, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I've come to say, this is my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, well, I, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will, be, will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together with the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king, will set me at rest. For the Lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Let me pause here. What does he think? You are acting. And she shows her cards. Hey, listen, go grab Absalom and bring him back to the land and protect him, just like I'm asking you to do for my, my sons. But they're not. She's acting. And she goes back into it. Well, then the king answered, verse 18. Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. The Lord says, is it the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right or to the left or anything that the Lord, the king has said. It was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant, Joab, did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angels of God to know all things that are on the earth. She praises his wisdom. Verse 21, then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today, your servant knows that I have a found favor in your sight, my lord, the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and found Absalom and brought him to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Verse 25, now all Israel there was no one so much it was to be praised as for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. In other words, he named it after his, uh, his, his sister, the aunt of this, uh, this young girl. So Absalom lived for two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent forth Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. And then he said to his servant, well, then fine. See Joab's field, it's next to mine. He has barley, 
There, go and set it on fire. So, so Absalom's servants set the field of fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom in his house. And he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Jeshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, well, then let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed before him on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me ask for God's help. Lord, we would love to learn from you, the ancient of days, how this ancient story uh, is to be a light into our path. Hear us, we pray, for help, because we ask uh, for Jesus' sake, our great and gracious King. Amen. Uh, it's, um, it's sad. Uh, we watch the news. Many of you have listened and watched the news and heard of tragic uh, war and violence uh, in the Holy Land. Uh, it's, it's, when we hear these things, it's a, it's a good exercise. I think you would agree when you hear about what's happening, that we would seek to put ourselves in other people's shoes. I felt like one of the best articles that I read this week that helped me do that was when uh, this journalist was making the analogy. What has happened with Hamas attacking uh, the terrorist attacks going into Israel? It's like their 9-11. Thousands of innocent people have been killed. It might be interesting to note, uh, and, and, and very ironic, that the word Hamas, which I'm pretty sure is high on the most Googled uh, terms this week, right? Uh, what's the definition or what is Hamas? Hamas is a transnational uh, Sunni. It's a, it's a Muslim uh, brotherhood group that was formed uh, many years ago in Egypt. Uh, it's, not, it's not just uh, located there. It's, it's, it is transnational. Uh, the Hamas is a, uh, uh, an Arabic acronym. I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's essentially an Islamic resistance movement. Here's the irony. The very word Hamas in Hebrew means violence. It is so sad to see uh, conflict in the Middle East. And I'm going to pray at the end of the sermon that God would bring his mercy. I'm sure you're going to want to join me. Why? Because of the, the many things that God detests, the Lord Yahweh, we are told, six things that he detests. One of them is hands, Proverbs 16, that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. Now, for, for a host of reasons, not, not that I have the time right now to take up and explain, uh, what we know when we read of the uh, people of God, Israel, as an entity, as a nation in Scripture, and what we see in Israel today as a geopolitical nation state that was started in the 1950s, those are different things. Okay? Those are not one in the same. But as far as war and conflict, violence that has marked that territory, literally ever since recorded human history, we have seen, yes, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites. Uh, we have seen the Assyrians and the, 
and the wicked Chaldeans and the Babylonians, and yes, the people of Israel in conflict. It is sad, but it has persisted. But for as many enemies as Israel had, as we have read in Scripture so clearly, as many as enemies that Israel had from without, Israel, the people of God, had enemies also from within. And that's part of what this passage and the, the following chapters illustrates. Even when people are manipulating, even when people are plotting evil, we know that God is still on his gracious, sovereign throne. Two headings, okay? Here they are. They're listed in the order of service to break down this passage for us. The two headings are this. Um, first, Joab's manipulation. And the second is the king's submission. I know you're thinking to yourself, Troy, uh, Pastor, uh, why uh, lately you've been only having two points and the sermons are still yet longer? <laughs> okay, okay, I get it, all right? I'm sorry, but the, yeah, this is a long passage and it's not easy. It is complicated. Uh, I, I'll grant you that. I've, spent, uh, more, I've had to spend more time in study and, uh, and that's good and well and fine. Here we go, all right? Uh, Joab's manipulation. First of all, Joab, as I mentioned, is a, is a commander uh, underneath uh, King David. And he is at times a very duplicitous character. He is a get-the-job-done kind of guy. Um, and, and he's not disinclined from seeking revenge. Uh, many uh, people uh, could, could, could highlight this. Again, uh, in our passage, in verse 1, it says that David's... Um, let me go back and uh, if you'll turn back and, and look at it. Joab sent the son... He knew, uh, the son of uh, Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now, that's a, there, there's, a, there's a, a trickiness in that interpretation because it, it, it doesn't mean, it doesn't necessitate a positive, his heart and thoughts went out to his son who's in exile. And, and what we learn and what we see is like, yeah, you, you, you don't really want him to come back. And there's a reason that Joab has to hatch this whole weird plan with this woman who's an actress to come and try to conjole, you know, David to agree to this plan. David's not that inclined to see. He doesn't have a positive affection. He's not waiting for his son to come home uh, from, from exile with open arms. Uh, nor does Absalom think that. We don't know exactly why Joab is motivated to do this, but he wants to craft his own, you know, Nathan-type parable by sending this woman who is... Uh, not an actual grieving widow, but as an actress, uh, to come and to, to tell this, uh, this tale, this parable. Um, you know, she comes with a story that's kind of akin to, uh, it sounds at echoes of Cain and Abel as brothers. And she says, listen, I had you know, these two sons, and in, an, in a heated moment of, of disagreement and conflict, one of them killed the other. And no one was there to stop them, and it was an accident. It's, it's, it's almost in the realm of kind of manslaughter. But, but what we know is that even in circumstances like that, Old Testament law is, we're told, and uh, in, in, in specifically in Numbers 35, uh, that for the sake of the family, uh, you know, well, the, he would still have to be punishable by, uh, by death. That if, if Absalom were to come back, uh, it, would have, it would have been known, and he would have been uh, executed uh, for his crimes. But for the sake of the family, she's saying, please, you know, have mercy. Help me. Uh, if you, you know, if you take my other son, then then I'm 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 a I'm a widow and I've lost my inheritance, which is true. Um, if that was actually true, because in the ancient Near East, a, a woman who has no sons uh, runs the risk of losing all of her 
uh, her husband's uh, possessions and inheritance. So she's saying, listen, there are people in my family that are, are that they, it's, it's not out of justice that they want Absalom dead, uh, it, or my son, who you know, she's alluding to is an Absalom type figure. The reason that they want him dead isn't about justice, it's to cover their greed. So please don't let them act. And David says, fine, as the king, surely as the Lord lives, I'll protect you uh, and I'll protect this other son. Now, because um, she's saying, if you don't intervene, then I'm hopeless. But then he figures out, he understands, he's wise. And he picks up on the fact in verse, eight, in verse 18 and 19, you know what? Joab is behind this, isn't he? And, and, and he's wise. In verse 20, he is very wise. Nevertheless, uh, he sees Joab's hand in this, uh, but, but, he, but he's, still, he's still not in step with the wisdom of God. And we'll see why. So nevertheless, David's poor leadership continues. And so he submits, he consents, if you will, uh, to this plan to bring Absalom back into the city uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, our, our next point uh, is going to speak to his agreement and conceding to that plan. Just as a side note, Joab uh, here, his manipulative way uh, we see is very crafty, uh, you know, towards Absalom. What's the deal, right? You know, he's like, Absalom concocts his own plan. What's the deal? Why would you bring me back here uh, just to live in, in the palace, never see the king, have no you know, forward uh, reconciliation or other details? So you know, he's like, why am I just sitting here, verse 30, in isolation? Um, go tell Joab to, to get me a hearing in front of the king. I, what, what's the deal? And so what does he decide to do? He says, Absalom, Absalom says to his servants, you go light a fire and just burn up his field. Are there, are there non-responsive, passive-aggressive people in your life? If you want to get their attention, arson's typically a way to do that. <laughs> that that's not the takeaway. That's not the application of the sermon today, young people, uh, or those who are, are inclined towards bitterness uh, or manipulation. Not a good plan. But it does work to get people's attention. And he gets a hearing with the king. And what does the king do? What does King David do? He continues with poor leadership, sadly enough. So here's our other heading. The king's submission. This is a chapter that's part of, sadly, an overall uh, season and chapters where David is not exercising godly leadership. Others want to take the reins. Others want to exert their will and their wishes. And David is no longer like we saw David previous, a man of action and conviction. He's only reacting. Uh, He's not really ruling he could have banished Absalom for life in that foreign country of, of Jeshur. But again, he could have also just executed justice, which is what the situation called for when Amnon violated Tamar, when Absalom decided to take up revenge. The, the, the tragedy could have, have been halted if he had acted, but he does not. And this tragedy continues on. Ironically, even Absalom is confused with the king's submission. Uh, he's like, why, why am I even here? I can't even believe that I got pulled out of exile and brought here by Absalom. Uh, Absalom's thinking by Joab. And then he begins to act, uh, ask the question. Uh, look again at the text with me, verse 32. Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send the king to ask, Why have I come to gesture? It would have been better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. 
Now, that, was a, that was a risky bargain. That was a risky endeavor. But I think he's, he's assuming to himself, hey, listen, there was really no chance of me ever having a comeback, but now I've got one and I'm going for gold. I mean, I, I'm gonna go for it all. And he's ready. He wants to have uh, a, 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 an avenue to, uh, to take back uh, his power and his position in some way or another. Maybe he wants, of course, to be the heir. Absalom, we're going to see, sadly enough, uh, David, like I said, neither pursued justice nor did he truly show mercy. He didn't pursue justice with the sons, uh, but he doesn't show mercy, truly show mercy here to Absalom. Absalom, as we're going to see in the weeks, the chapters, which is really the years ahead, Absalom, um, well, we're, it's, it's, it's sad because uh, we know that he is crooked. He has evil designs against his father. He wants power more than he wants any kind of reconciliation. When Absalom took out his brother Amnon in revenge, he probably thought in those first three years of, of exile, I got no chance to come back, but here it is. And then the verses 25, 26, and 27, as I was studying the passage this week, you're like, what? why is this even here? What, what are those verses? Let's go back and look at them together. It says here that now in all of Israel, there was no one to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the, from the bottom of his feet to the crown of his head. I mean, he, he was like poster child, handsome uh, heir. You know, he, he's, you know, people are fawning all over this guy. And we're like, why is, that, why is that even noted here? What's the point of that? And who is this guy who's obsessed with his hair, Right. Don't be thinking about anyone else. Um, the world saw this man and valued him for who he is. I think when we read that, though, it should, it should tip us off. It, it should, it, there should be an echo there. He's tall. He's handsome. He's, he's, he's powerful. This is like Saul, King Saul, who the world said, the world, by, by the world's virtues, is, is, is wonderful and to be sought out as our first king over Israel. And he was a disaster because the, the, the world looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the... The world looks at the outside appearance. You know, beautiful people with lots of... No. And, and God looks at the Heart. And we will see and find out more about Absalom. Physical presence before men without internal submission in your hearts towards God always makes for bad leadership. Now, let's, let's just pivot uh, in what I hope to be a closing here. Let me just pivot. Some of you are familiar with the parable I think we read as our New Testament reading a few weeks ago in Luke 15. There's the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. The parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells us that. It's not our text today. Maybe you want to turn there. But in some ways it echoes in a way that is in a, it's, 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 it's juxtaposed against this son returning home. And I'll explain what I mean. Aren't you grateful Aren't you grateful that it is different? That the, the, the story of the prodigal son is different than when Absalom returns to Jerusalem. And aren't you grateful that our heavenly father is different than what we see pictured and illustrated here? Because the prodigal, that famous story, he wants what? 
But more importantly, what does he not want? The prodigal son says, I don't want you, dad. I want your money. And I want, go ahead and just give it to me early. And then he goes off and he takes that money to buy, uh, fill in the blank, wine and women, the pleasures of the world. And he is eating it up to the full. And his stomach says what? Oh, yuck. This is not what I thought would satisfy and complete me. And what does he do? The, 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 the text tells us that he came to himself or he came to his senses and said, my father, I'm going to go back to my father. And, I, and I, I've already, he on the way, you know, in his mind, he has a whole speech prepared. I'm going to go and I'm going to, be, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'll be your servant. I'll sleep with the pigs. I'll do anything. I'm not, I don't deserve to be your son. Just let me back. And what do we see to the surprise of him, the family, everybody in the community that found out about it? The father runs to greet him with, with joy and celebration. And he forgives the son and restores the son. But there are some distinct differences in this story. Absalom is not truly contrite. And King David is not truly willing to show compassion. Even the kiss, right? The very last verse of our chapter here, verse 33. Now Joab went to the king, told him, he summoned Absalom, so he came to the king, bowed before him on his face, and the king kissed Absalom. He kissed Absalom. And what are we to make of that? I think this is actually more protocol and politics than it is saying, hey, I, you know, you'll be the next heir. You're, you're good. No, I think it's just more of a gesture. It's a sign. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, puts it best. Absalom returns from exile, unpunished, unforgiven, and unashamed. Let me say that again. He returns, Absalom does, unpunished, unforgiven, and unashamed. Aren't you grateful that our heavenly father is, is different, that our king and our kingdom is different. He gives us the gift of repentance and faith. And when we exercise that, then what we experience, yeah, it's shame. But what we experience is full forgiveness. And we experience a punishment and we have an inheritance. And we, we, we reign with him someday. But it's on account of someone else being punished. It's Christ on the cross. That's the only reason that our good king and elder brother Jesus clearly making a way for us to be restored, forgiven, reconciled by absorbing our punishment, not his, on the cross. So, so my friends, as, as we leave here today, may, may we encounter this story and process it. May we see our condition with accuracy and, and urgency. The urgency of coming in repentance and faith to a good and gracious king. Lord, sometimes we just need to say it. And, and, and not, 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 not relative to, well, I didn't murder anybody in revenge like Absalom did. No, just according to the own ways that you know you violated your conscience. You have not loved the Lord your God with your whole self or your neighbor as yourself. And you go to God and you say, my life's, my life's cha it's chaotic. It's a mess. 
And I need a king to fix it. The king whom we call Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Almighty, we just would ask again that even as we seek to to digest and more importantly, respond and apply your word, would you give us your spirit so that we can know both guidance and the good news. Send your spirit to comfort, to convict, to counsel, to, to press our face and our gaze and vision towards the Savior. And Lord, we are sad and we do pray that you would restrain evil uh, in the world. And we pray especially today that you'd comfort those who are just trying to collect the, the, the very pieces of the unimaginable grief and sorrow the, 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 for the people of, of Israel and Palestine, the, the temptations toward bitterness. Lord, we pray for justice. We pray for peace. We, we pray that the hearts of those who plan evil to be, to be softened and, and for the knowledge of Christ, the true Messiah, to grab them. Lord, would you give world leaders right now both humility uh, and boldness along with wisdom? Lord, would you please restrain evil, evil thoughts, words, deeds in our own lives, in our own relationships. Lord, I pray today for those who are struggling for any number of reasons, especially I pray for those who are struggling with addiction. I pray for those who are living with the pain of suffering because of of other people's sins. Lord, I pray that you'd help people in our own congregation who are looking for a hope in relationships. They're looking for a hope in the healing of relationships. I pray for those who are looking for work and those who are looking to, to make changes and to make decisions. Give them discernment and wisdom. Be with those who are seeking healing and are waiting on you. And pray you'd grant them patience and your healing touch. Please stir, Lord, a deep hunger for the hearing and the reading of your word on the South Shore. Would you raise up more churches and more laborers? Lord, I I pray today with great thanks for uh, the the ministry and the congregation at West Bridgewater Community Church. Increase their witness, Lord. Bless their leadership. Lord, would you remind us all this week of the gospel, the good news of your love and your forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name.